0: Welcome to the seventh session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This session is entitled Father Abraham. And you're probably like me. You've heard that Abraham is the father of our faith. I've heard that in my entire life, but most of my life, all I knew about Abraham was the Sunday school song, Father Abraham had many sons and the uh, hand motions. So for all practical purposes, I had a mental file for Abraham, but there wasn't anything in it. But the Bible says that I am blessed because of Abraham. Genesis twelve three, God told Abraham, "In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul taught extensively on our spiritual heritage in Abraham. And the cornerstone of his teaching was this statement, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That sentence is repeated six times in the Bible twice in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. And what does it mean? It means that Abraham was in right standing with God simply because he believed what God said. What did God say? He gave him a lot of promises, and we're going to talk about those promises tonight. But first, I want to share a little story with y'all. A few years ago, I was preparing to teach about Abraham, and the righteousness of faith. And I was reading Romans 4 where it talks about a situation that Abraham had where uh, it says it was contrary to faith. I mean, contrary to hope. Hope against hope is the way another version says it. In other words, it was a hopeless situation. And at the time I was thinking of a situation that I was dealing with where the things that I was seeing in the natural were not lining up with the promises of God that I believed that he had given me over many years. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, but the problem was he didn't have any children. But contrary to hope, and hope he believed, and when he was 100 years old, he finally had a son. So I was pondering all of this in my heart, and it was just one of those times where God just spoke. And he said, land of the living. Land of the living, over and over. And I thought, okay, I think I know where that verse is. And the way I was remembering it was, I would have lost heart unless I had seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So I went and looked it up. And it's Psalm 27, 13. I was missing a key phrase in that. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart very strongly. I have my notes from that time. This was five or six years ago. And he said, you must continue to believe in me and trust in my promises. And he said, hang on to hope and you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The Greek word for hope is elpis, and it means a Joyful, confident expectation of good in your future. So it means that when things don't seem to be going against, everything seems to be going against the promises of God, that's when you do not give up on His faithfulness. Now what does that look like? It's a four-letter word, the word wait. The very next verse in Psalm 27, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. And that word wait is the Hebrew word kava, and it means to expect and to eagerly look for. Ever since that time that I was studying Abraham and, and the Lord took His story and connected it with Psalm 27, Abraham has been the father of my faith and his story inspires me to never give up on a promise of God. And I pray that this teaching will inspire you too, that even if it's a promise you've been waiting on for a long, long time, you still do not give up on God and it's his faithfulness. It's not just his promise. It's his faithfulness. You know, he's going to be faithful to you. All right, as I have said before, Abraham lived 430 years before the law was given, and he was considered righteous by faith, not by works, not by adherence to laws. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant was based purely on grace. And in this covenant, and you can go back and study it, there is no mention of punishment or wrath concerning Abraham. However, after the law was given, we see in Numbers and Deuteronomy that time and time again, when God's people complained or broke laws, they incurred punishment and even wrath. Why is this? What changed? Did God change? No, He doesn't change. You remember the verse that says, He, sa- he said of Himself, I am the Lord. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness, and we know we can know the names of God. He's always been Jehovah Rapha, our healer; Jehovah Jireh, our provider; Jehovah Shalom, our peace; Jehovah Nisi, our banner of victory. And you can go on. Did the people change? No, they were still Abraham's descendants. They they had uh st- were still behaving in many ways the same way they. Missed the mark before the law was given. They missed the mark after the law was given. So what was the difference? It was the covenant that they were under. With the Abrahamic covenant, they were under undeserved, unmerited blessing with only one qualification. They were in the bloodline of Abraham. But with the Mosaic covenant, bloodline wasn't enough. Now it was bloodline plus performance, and obedience to the over 600 laws of the Old Covenant. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed with the curse of the law. And you can look that up in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68. Do that on your own time. I don't like reading that part. But nevertheless, and I I tell you, I've spent the last three years or so with in the Old Testament as much as in the New Testament. And I see time and time and time again... Passages like the one I'm going to read to you, and this is out of the message. God told His people, I have never quit loving you and never will. Expect love, love, and more love. And so now I'll start over with you and build you up again. Whenever I read about Abraham's physical descendants, whom God calls the, the sand on the seashore, I know there is a parallel for us because we are Abraham's spiritual descendants, whom God calls the stars in the sky. So no matter how far we wander, we will never wander beyond the reach of God's everlasting love and kindness. And no matter how much we tear down what he has built, he'll just start over with us. Seventy times seven to infinity. So about 1500 years after Sinai and the giving of the law, a prophet named John the Baptist came on the scene and He says in, in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in the fullness of time, when the law had served its purpose and proved that the flesh of man would always fall short of the glory of God, God sent His Son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Redeem, it means to buy out of slavery. The law was bondage with its death sentence. So Jesus came and paid the price with his very own blood to, to break the bonds of that ministry of death and condemnation that we talked about last time. So Jesus was the end of that old covenant system. No longer would man relate to God based on performance and laws. From that point on, access to God was by grace through faith in Christ's righteousness imparted to us as a gift. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 8, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. So a covenant in those days, a covenant was much stronger than like a legal agreement or a business contract because the only way a covenant could be enacted was by death. So in Hebrews 9, it says, for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. It's like a will is not enacted until the person dies. That's the way the new covenant was. It was not put into effect until Jesus died on the cross. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made, made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, was not inaugurated without blood. Now what that's talking about is Moses, with the, from the instruction of God, took the blood of goats and calves and sprinkled it everywhere. He sprinkled it on the people. He sprinkled it on the scrolls. And that was to establish the old covenant. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. And it was through the blood that everything was cleansed. Verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And then in verse 26 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, it says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, Jesus has been manifested. What does that mean? He put on human flesh so that he could become the lamb of god to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and as hebrews 10:12 says one sacrifice for sins forever and at the last supper jesus took the cup gave thanks and this is what he said to his disciples this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the remission of sins So at the cross, Jesus is predicting that he's going to the cross, right? He would experience all of the effects of sin and the curse, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the condemnation, all of the forsakenness, the death, the sickness, everything, because that is what sin demanded. And in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, bought us out, set us free from the curse of the law, having become a curse For us, in other words, we're not under the law because of Jesus. For it it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Why is this? Now this is where we're coming back to Abraham. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. What is the blessing of Abraham? The righteousness of faith. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And in verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on in verse 29, I'm skipping, but 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So by virtue of this living spiritual union that we have in Jesus, we are Abraham's spiritual seed and heirs of the promise. Now, what is the promise? promise. Well, Paul says in verse 14, the promise of the Spirit through faith. All right. We've talked about the law. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, it says in Romans 8, God did. And He did it through a a miraculous agency of the Holy Spirit to transform us within into sons of God who are worthy to be God's own heirs. <laughs> so this is a, this is mind-blowing, okay? With the Holy Spirit's eternal indwelling presence in us, by the Spirit in union with our spirit, we are insured of eternal righteousness in him, and he is the deposit guaranteeing this eternal inheritance. And every blessing and every promise of God. As I keep saying, it's a foolproof covenant. And this is likened to the promise that he made to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. In Hebrews 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, God swore by himself, so he made the promise and the oath, which I'm not going to read the whole passage. You can go read it. But this is what he said. Surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now for him, that, that was Isaac, his spiritual seed through whom the great nation would come through. But Abraham's son, Isaac, and you remember from Genesis 22, His only son, the son that he loved, is a picture of Jesus, whom we have come from. We are that holy nation. And so God is saying to us, through my son, blessing, I will bless you, Ecclesia, church. Multiplying, I will multiply you. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So that's another reason to hang out in these earthen vessels just a little bit longer, right? (laughs) And I talk about that. Like this is the means by which the glory of God is released through us. Because once we're gone, we're gone, right? Now to Abraham's story. In Genesis 12, God met this 75-year-old childless heathen in the desert, And he said to him, he told him what was to come in Genesis 12. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Imagine that for yourself. I I don't need to get distracted, but just when he's talking about this, this is you. Okay. This is the body of Christ. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ten years later in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again. He's still childless at 85, but God has come now to enact this unconditional covenant. And fulfillment of this covenant is going to rest on God alone. There are no if-then clauses for Abraham. So, God says to Abraham, Look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So, here's Abraham, 85, still childless, but still believing that he is going to have countless descendants and that he's going to be blessed in every way. And God called him righteous for his faith. And also God told Abraham in that chapter that he, there, he, w- he would inherit a promised land, which we know from Hebrews 4, that for us, this is representing the promised land of rest we have in the finished work of Jesus, which we're not going to talk about tonight, but we will. So Abraham, while he's looking up at the stars, he asked God a good question. He says, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And it was at that moment that God told Abraham to bring some animals because he was going to enact a covenant. And it was in the manner, through the manner in which Abraham would make this covenant that Abraham would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what God was saying would come to pass. And you'll see why in just a second. But in those days when two parties would come into a covenant, they would take the halves of animals and they would pass between them. But in Genesis 15, God alone is passing between the halves of those animals. And in verse 17, it says that He appeared as a smoking oven and a burning torch. And this symbolizes that in the midst of darkness, God will bring the light of His salvation. This is an Old Testament picture of Jesus, right? So God alone bound Himself to the terms of this promise Of this covenant with all of its promises, and he did it by putting Abraham in a deep sleep. So he had nothing to do with it. As I've said before, this was a covenant made within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. This is a picture of the new covenant, is what I'm saying. So fulfillment of this covenant rested on God alone. And the way that God did this, Abraham then knew he was fully convinced, persuaded that what God had promised. He was able to perform. Then 14 years later, I am telling Abraham's story in the most (laughs) abbreviated form that I can. But 14 years later, he's 99. He's still childless. But God comes to him in Genesis 17. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant And with his descendants after him. So, Abraham would finally have that heir of promise to carry on this covenant of grace. And when we read about the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know what we're going to read? Grace upon grace upon grace for people who were not perfect and in many ways very flawed. And once again, You will not see punishment, wrath, anger, any of that associated with this Abrahamic covenant. But go back and read those chapters in Genesis about this family and the mistakes that they made. All right, let's look at what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4 and see what all this has to do with us. Okay, in verse 1 of Romans 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? In other words, what did Abraham discover about his own righteousness, his own self-effort? Nothing good, as we will see, because we're going to see that he wasn't always a model citizen. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works or made righteous through performance, he has something to boast about, but not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works to be righteous, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. In other words, if you could earn righteousness, then God would be indebted to you. If, if right standing before God was a reward for good behavior, we would get the credit for earning it. And then we could boast so well, we would have to then concede that the flip side is also true and we would lose our righteousness if we were not perfectly behaved. And that is not a covenant that we want to be under. You cannot establish your own righteousness. And this is from Romans 10. I don't have it in your notes, but Romans 10, 3. You cannot establish your own righteousness and then submit to the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. You cannot believe you're righteous by what you do and still believe you're righteous as a gift. You will never be grateful to God. But if righteousness is truly a gift of God's grace, then Jesus gets the credit because He purchased it with His own blood and we can't lose it even when we fail. That's the good news of the gospel. Next verse, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. That's the scandal of the gospel right there. That God makes wicked people righteous. And if you are crazy enough to believe that, then your faith will also be accounted to you for righteousness. Again, to him who does not work, it is given to him by grace. If we could just stop working for it, he gives it to us for free. And Abraham is a perfect example of somebody who was not justified by his works. And he couldn't have been justified by the law because the law didn't come for hundreds of years later. So a good example is that on two occasions, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, and said that she was his sister. And he allowed two kings at two different times to take Sarah into their harem. And you know what that means. And he had a noble reason for it, to save his own skin. He was not a model always. He was a good man, but he was not always a model of integrity, but he was a model of a man living under the grace of God. Again, God did not punish him for this. This would be a good time, right, for God to rebuke him and punish him. But the opposite happened. God defended Abraham and prevented those kings from even touching Sarah. And they said, "Get out of here." Right? And God caused Abraham and Sarah to leave with great wealth, livestock, silver, and gold. And you can read those stories in Genesis 12 through 14 and again in verse 20. All right, back to Romans 4, this jumping to verse 13. For the promise that Abraham would be heir of the world, and that word is cosmos, all the world's riches and advantages, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, in other words, if you could obtain righteousness through earning it, then number one, faith is made void. And number two, the promise is of no effect. Now, this would be like getting a billion dollar inheritance check and it's in an unopened envelope. It does you no good. So just think. What does this passage say voids faith? Does it say anything about sin? No, because sin was dealt with at the cross. Number two, is it because you didn't work hard enough? You didn't do enough good things. You didn't pray enough. You didn't confess enough scriptures. You didn't fast long enough. Is that why faith is made void? That's not what it says either. Faith is made void if a person can obtain the promise of righteousness or any other promise or provision or blessing of God through their performance. The more you trust in your performance with the belief that you did something good in your efforts, that you prayed hard enough, that you fasted long enough, that you confessed enough scriptures or whatever else you want to say, your faith will be void. And you will never feel assured of your right standing before God because your efforts are never going to be enough. Just try it. Just try it if you haven't already. And why would you need faith if you could obtain it on your own? You cannot have it both ways. It's either our works or His grace. And if we want to live in that system... We void our faith and the promise of God becomes of no effect because this is what happens. You take matters in your own hands by your own self-effort. Galatians 5, 4. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law or you're made right by doing. You are fallen from grace. Falling from grace is not falling into sin. It's falling back into the law, earning through performance, which we've talked about leads to the works of the flesh. The strength of sin is the law. Okay. Now this truth can be applied to everything we pray about. The moment that we connect God's provision or blessings or anything else to our own achievement of our own self-effort, our faith becomes void. Now I looked up that word void. It's the Greek word kanao. And here, listen to what it means to make empty, to deprive of force. I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but I'm telling you, I have prayed three hours a day before. And I thought that by doing that, it would move the hand of God. But my faith had no force. Because it was in my own works that God, I had to do it for me. I must be righteous if I'm doing that much prayer. (laughs) All right. If you're sick or depressed or confused or addicted or broke or you can't sleep at night, you need Christ and his righteousness to be of effect in your life. All we need to know is that He ever lives to make intercession for us. Our mediator is not before the throne begging God. No, He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, having purged our sins. So when we come before the throne of grace and, uh, to obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need, our job is just to behold Jesus seated there with all of our enemies beneath His feet, having finished the work. All right, next verse. Fifteen, the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, I love this verse because this, this is where wrath comes in. The law brings wrath. And the kind of wrath that he was referring to is the Greek word orge. And it means anger exhibited in punishment. So if there's no law, there's no violation of it, there's no punishment in the sense of anger related to punishment. It's the same thing. Back to verse 16 now. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, speaking of Abraham's physical descendants, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, all nations. All the world, okay? Abraham is the, is, the, is the example. But we're talking about all the nations, every tongue and tribe in this world. As it is written, God says to Abraham, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, whom Abraham believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, speaking of an old man having a baby, who, in the speaking of Abraham, contrary to hope and hope believed, so that Abraham became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And I like that word consider, kataneo in the Greek. And it means he did not fix his mind on his circumstances. He did not give attention to that. All he gave attention to was the word of God. So against all odds, Abraham and Sarah conceived Isaac through faith in the promise. So you have Abraham who is a hundred years old, body as good as dead, the Bible says, and Sarah way past the age of childbearing birthed a son named Isaac by promise. Verse 20, and Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, And I could go into the story about Hagar and all of that, but let's just look at what God does remember. He remembers their faith in the new covenant, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So Abraham's faith grew stronger because he gave glory to God. That's the Greek word doxa. What does it mean? It means he had a good opinion of God. So he just was strengthened. He got stronger and stronger in his faith because he continued through thick or thin to have a good opinion of God, that is the best way we can give glory to God. It is just to simply believe Him and to trust in His faithfulness. And that'll be saying to God, I got a good opinion of you. So, but back to Abraham. How could he have a good opinion of God when year after year, it did not seem like God was delivering on His promise? Verse 21, he was fully convinced That what God had promised, He was also able to perform, and therefore it was His faith was accounted to Him for righteousness. Are we convinced that what God has promised, He not only is fully able to perform, but that He has already fully performed? First of all, that He has fully reconciled us to Himself through the death of Jesus in His physical body, Colossians one, and. Do we believe that He is fully able to perform any and every other promise? If He gave us the best, He'll give us the rest, right? Romans eight thirty That is the righteousness of faith. So God has made promises to us. And you remember the scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, All of God's promise, promises are yes and amen in Jesus. He's our hope. And I, I, this is kind of a personal story, but... This week, I read that, and I love reading that in the Living Bible. And I have it in my prayer notes, I don't know, probably 20 times. I love the way it's worded there, but I was reading it this week, and all of a sudden, I was just filled with hope in the faithfulness of God because He reminded me of, and I'll show it to y'all, my favorite Bible in my house, and I have a lot of them. If you know people that need a Bible, I got a bunch of Bibles that I don't even look at. But this is my favorite, and I, I, I'll give it away if God says to. But this is a symbol of the faithfulness of God. This was Mama's Bible in the 70s when she began teaching us about Jesus. And so I decided that I would read it literally in, in her Bible. And this is what it is. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul said, I have been telling you about Jesus Christ the Son of God. He isn't one to say yes when He means no. He always does exactly what He says. He carries out and fulfills all of God's promises, no matter how many of them there are. And we have told everyone how faithful He is, giving glory to His name. And I decided that I would just look through this for a minute, and I noticed how many times Mama had underlined scriptures and highlighted scriptures and wrote in the columns about God's faithfulness and his promises. And then I remembered that during that season, I was not very old at the time, but my, my parents were going through a hard time. There were some hard things happening uh, in in, in the business and stuff like that. It was a hard time for my mother, but this encouraged me so much to see. And this is the heritage that she passed down to me that this is what I believe. So, yes. And I passed down to my kids too. Right? This one is in bold yellow. I mean, it's lasted 50 something years in this Bible. Underlined with brackets around it. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our inner strength in the Lord is growing every day. These troubles and sufferings of ours are, after all, quite small and won't last very long. Yet this short time of distress will result in God's richest blessing upon us forever and ever. And then I'll just read one more on the next page, Ver, uh, chapter 5. For God was in Christ restoring the world to himself. This is what the world needs to hear. A lot of crazy stuff going on. I'm on this side. Whose side are you on, Joshua? The Lord's side, okay? For God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself, no longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is using us to speak to you. We beg you as though Christ himself were here pleading with you. Receive the love that He offers you. Be reconciled to God. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into Him our sins. Then in exchange, He poured God's goodness into us. Isn't that a wonderful heritage? God named His Son faithful and true. And that's who our hope is in, is in Jesus. Amen.